Well, it's great to be with you as we continue our summer series uh, through the early chapters of Revelation, through the letters from Christ to the seven churches in Asia. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Revelation chapter 2, we'll be there this morning. Revelation 2. These are the seven letters we're discussing this summer, are the seven letters penned from John through the words of Christ to actual churches and actual people in a real location. This morning we're looking at the church in Pergamum, and Pergamum was the Washington, D.C. of its day, of its area. It was the capital of Asia Minor. And here's a map just to kind of show you where it is in relation to the other six we'll be discussing. We've already discussed a few of these. There's Pergamum up top, the northernmost city. And Pergamum is a beautiful, it was a beautiful city, stunningly gorgeous. Here's another picture. This is an artist's rendering of what it looked like to approach Pergamum. You can see it rested on a hill. And as you approach with the scenery, the landscaping, the stonework, the temples, all of it was stunning. It would make quite a statement on you. And this was where you wanted to be. You wanted to live there. It sat apart atop this hill shrines, idols. It was a wealthy city, an influential city. In there is a 200,000 scroll library, which was massive for its time. At the same time, Pergamum was the epitome of pagan worship, idol worship, worldliness. It was a hotbed for paganism. So if you were a hedonist, or if you were a pagan, this was where you wanted to be. This is where you wanted to hang out. And they worshipped all kind of gods here, but they also mainly, as the capital, it was the capital of Caesar worship here. And you weren't just supposed to revere Caesar. You weren't just supposed to look up to him, maybe salute him when he walks by. You had to worship him. He was Lord. And you can see, imagine being a Christian. We say Christ is Lord through our creed, living in a culture that says Caesar is Lord by law. And anyone who denied the lordship of Caesar, anybody who said Caesar was not God, would be worthy of persecution, of prison, mainly also of death. And there's this ever-looming threat for these people, for the church in Pergamum, of death, of martyrdom. They're always living under that pressure. And they would have in Pergamum these pagan festivals in in, uh, reverence to Caesar, in reverence to their pagan gods. And if you didn't go to these, if you're a Christian, you say, you know, I'm not going to go to that. They looked at you with suspicion. Why is John not going to the festival? And if you did go to the festival, if you didn't eat the meat the way they wanted it eaten, if you didn't worship at the right times, you know, they're like, what's he got going on that he's not doing these things that everyone else is? They might phone it into the government. You never know. So what would you do in that situation? What would I do? If we're living in that kind of culture, how far do we draw the line? We want to be in the world, engaging, but we don't want to be of the world, And because of this Caesar worship, because of all the pagan worship there, Christ actually describes Pergamum as the throne of Satan, the place where Satan lives. And when I first read that this week, I thought to myself, that is shocking language. That is striking language, a stark description, the place where Satan dwells. And it got me thinking about United States of America, all these different states, and they all want us to come visit on vacation. And so I, I looked up some state tourism slogans online. I'm from Texas, so let me read you Texas 
Texas's um, tourism slogan, all right? Texas, it's like a whole other country. So anyone here ever been to Texas? You can likely attest it is like a whole other country. I would say in a good way, but some would say not so much. Like a whole other country. Um, what about Michigan? You guys living where we live, we see Michigan ads all the time on TV. Michigan, Great Lakes, Great Times. Or Michigan, Pure Michigan. I like that one, kind of catchy, simple, kind of paints, paints the picture. What about South Carolina? This is one of my favorites. It's so simple, yet I love it for some reason. South Carolina, made for vacation. Yeah. So to South Carolina, I say, you had me at vacation. And I, I don't want to pack my Jeep up with my family and go down there right now and see if they're being honest about this, because it sounds pretty sweet. Made for vacation. And then I had the misfortune in my studies. This is deep studies, by the way. <laughs> I had the um, misfortune of coming across Indiana's state tourism slogan. <laughs> you guys ready for this? This is the, the worst one of all 50 we have. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Indiana. Honest to goodness, Indiana. <laughs> Drop the mic, altar call. You guys ready? Let's do this. That's the worst. Come on. We can sign a petition today, get it down, down to the Senate. We want a reboot on our state slogan. We probably spent $5 million coming up with that. <clears throat> Horrible. Honest to goodness, Indiana. What about Pergamum? Pergamum, where Satan lives. Pergamum, the throne of Satan. And I don't know, <clears throat> to me, that does not instill a desire to go visit there on vacation. Kind of haunting, chilling. Maybe I'll go there for like some type of Halloween thing. But uh, imagine putting that on your license plate or having that on your business card. Yeah, I'm from Pergamum where Satan dwells. Oh, okay. So obviously, this is a tough city for Christians to be in. Imagine trying to retain a Christian witness in that culture where Satan dwells. Satan is not omnipresent. He has to dwell somewhere, and he chooses to hang his hat there. This is a culture that is radically hostile to the Christian faith, to the gospel. Yet this church, the church in Pergamum, they were out there. They were in the world, engaging the culture, sharing their faith, willing to die for their faith. They were where the church should be. We should be out in the culture we should understand the language of the culture, engage it, speak into it with truth. And that's what they were doing. They were holding fast to their faith, loving their neighbors, willing to die for their beliefs. And we're going to see in a minute, some of them actually did die for their beliefs in Christ. So with that, let's just read our passage. I'll read it aloud. If you guys would stand in reverence to the scriptures. Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. I'll read if you guys will follow along. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. 
If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the words of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, open your scriptures this morning, in a culture that is increasingly drifting towards Pergamum, I pray you would use these words to speak to us, to exhort us, to comfort us, to strengthen us in the gospel. And I pray we would leave this room today more in love with you than when we walked in. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So what I want to do this morning is just read through this passage again. I have no outline for the sermon. The text is actually my outline. We're just going to walk through it and talk about it. There's a basic structure here to this letter. He greets them. He encourages them. He admonishes them. And finally, he ends the letter by sharing these amazing, beautiful promises of grace to them, which I'm really excited to tell you about at the end. So let's go back to verse 12. If you have a Bible, you can feel free to leave it open. We'll be working through it slowly. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the words of him, that him there is Christ. He has a sharp two-edged sword, which is his word. And what his word does is it cuts truth from lies, good from bad. And what he's doing is painting a threatening image here. I'm the one with the sword. These guys are living under the threat of the Roman sword. He's saying, I have the great two-edged sword. And this is a threatening image unless Christ is on your team. If he's on your team, this is great. This is comforting, right? And I think to this church, this is an encouragement. This is a comforting image. I ultimately will the power, he says. I am in charge. And moving on to verse 13, he writes, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And we kind of talked a little bit about that already. He's saying, you guys are in a tough place, in a tough culture. You guys didn't take the easy road. You're not trying to plant a church in the Bible Belt. You are in the hotbed of paganism. And I want you to know that I see it. I'm aware of it. I appreciate it. And this is a reminder to all of us today as well. Those who struggle, who are feeling the marginalization that comes with being a Christian nowadays. You guys feel the weight of that? If you follow the news, it's hard not to feel that. It's not lost on him. He's aware. He's in charge. He's sovereign. He knows what's going on. He's not blind to your struggles, to your insecurities, to your pains. A great reminder to all of us as we struggle to retain and, re- and keep fast to the words of grace. At the end of verse 13, he continues, despite that, he says, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. That is a great testimony. Despite living in the throne of Satan, you guys are holding true to Christ, holding fast. You have not denied me when it would be expedient to do so, when it would be so easy to do so. You guys are standing firm in the faith. He goes on, even in the days of Antipas, My faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
So this church was not just thinking persecution was down the pipe. They were feeling it. They were ripping people out of their services and slaughtering them there. They felt the persecution. It was real to them. Christians were actually dying for their faith here. And Antipas is a, an interesting character. He, is a, he was a leader of the church in Pergamum. And history tells us they pulled him out of church, out of worship, and drug him to the pagan temple. And they told him, recant your faith, deny Christ, and he would not do it. So they stuck him in this copper bowl. And this bowl was shaped like a bull, like a pagan bull. And they put the lid on it, and they lit a fire underneath it, and they roasted him alive for his faith. And that's not just some story Christ tells for dramatic effect. That actually really happened. He's saying, I'm aware. You guys stood strong even in the midst of that, even in the midst of losing one of your leaders. This guy was roasted alive for his faith, and Christ says, for that you're my faithful witness. What a beautiful testimony, yet tragic. And then moving on, let's check out verse 14. So that's kind of an encouragement a little bit, a greeting, an encouragement. Now he's going to get into his admonishment to the church. Verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there, so not all, but some, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some there who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And that is a reference to the Old Testament. Balak was the king of Moab. We read about this in Numbers 23 to 25. If you want to take a note, read that sometime. It's a pretty interesting story. He's the king of Moab, and he sees the Israelites coming. They're a mighty army. They have God on their side, taking whatever they want. Enemies cannot stand against them. He sees this, and he goes, he knows, I can't fight these guys head on. I don't have a chance with these guys. So what does he do? He and Balaam get together, and they have some Moabite women. They instruct them to go into the camp, and they seduce the Israelite men and draw their hearts to themselves, away from the women whom God wanted for them. Draws their hearts to them, and then slowly begin to draw their heart towards their pagan gods. And God, uh, naturally, was pretty furious. He's a jealous God, and he comes down on the children of Israel with a plague, and 24,000 people are wiped out from this plague. That was his strategy by Balak. He knew he couldn't take him head on. So he came around the side where they were weak. He had to be creative. And Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum, you guys are falling into the same trap. History truly does repeat itself. You're strong in some areas. Good night. You guys are dying for your faith. You're so strong out there. But you have some weak spots, some blind spots that you're failing to address in your church. And you're getting, ta- getting taken down in those areas of weakness. Many of you have likely heard of the name T.E. Lawrence, or we know him best as Lawrence of Arabia. He was this British soldier around the time of World War, World War I. And the um, Ottoman Empire had occupied some Arab land. And he was with the British trying to retake this land from the Turks. And so they gave him, for his little army, a ragtag bunch of nomads. These guys were not trained in the normal sense of military. They were just a bunch of guys who could go really far on a camel. 
And uh, the Turks, on the other hand, had this massive army, had all the greatest you know, guns and ammunition, warfare. They had more men. They had a fortification. And he had this ragtag bunch of men. So what could they do? Well, they, they weren't a skilled army, but they could go a long way. Apparently, it's told that they could travel, this is amazing, 110 miles in the desert per day because they traveled so lightly. They just had a little bit of flour, a little bit of water, and a gun that was like a pretty chintzy little light thing. It's all they had. They could travel long distances, and they were tough. So they were mobile, and they were tough. That was his advantages. So his stroke of genius was when he overtook this city of Aquaba. Now, the city rested facing out towards the Gulf, and the British had an amazing navy at the time, so they're expecting the British to come full on from the Gulf. So all their ammunition, all their guns were facing that way. And behind them was the most inhospitable land in all the Middle East. Think jagged rocks that would cut the toes of the camels, you know. Think no shade, Think no water for, for hundreds of miles. It's impassable. Locals would stay away. No one's going through there. So they backed up into that land. And Lawrence says, that's the way we're going in. Through that side. So he takes his men through this outrageous 600-mile journey through this harsh land and attacks Aquaba from the other side where they weren't expecting it. And they had no fortification there. No ammunition, no men were watching guard there. They just stormed it and took it over. Apparently, word is that um, his little band of men killed or captured 1,200 Turks, and they only lost two in the process of their own. It's an amazing victory. The Turks thought nobody would be mad enough to come at us from that side. And I watched the movie this last week, Lawrence of Arabia. My wife and I tried to get through it. It was terribly long. But we got half of it. So we watch, we watch the movie. We think, okay, this is all right. It's like two hours and a half in. And then it says intermission. <laughs> and um, yeah, we couldn't make it to the end yet. But we watched the first half. And there's this amazing scene of the movie when they're storming the city. The camera pans out. And all the guns from the city are facing the gulf. And these guys just storm right in, unopposed. No fortification. And so think of that in relation to this church in Pergamum. Think about this. They're out there in the world, in the culture, on the front lines. You know, their fortification is strong. They will die for this. But with that, all their energy is focused this way. They fail to see some false teaching creep in on this side. They weren't fortified on this side. All their energies were spent fortifying out there. They thought, surely if we're going down, we're going down from the pagans, from the Romans. That's how we're going to lose What they didn't expect was for the attack to come from their unfortified side, to creep in and chip away from inside the church, from their less protected areas. And this rebuke from Christ comes not because they're dropping the ball out there. They're actually doing an amazing job out there. But because they were failing to hold the line on their blind side. All their guns were facing out. And they let some false teaching, some false doctrine, some immorality, some disregard to God's law creep in and didn't take care of it. I once heard a favorite preacher of mine, his name's R.C. Sproul. He gave a series on marriage once. And in this sermon series, he shared this idea. He said, list the five qualities, for those who are married, list the five qualities that you most desire to have in a spouse. And then go through on your hand 
and rate your spouse from one to ten on those five. It's kind of scary. But um, he said, there's a good chance your spouse is going to be so strong, have some tens. Here's a ten, here's a nine, here's a nine, here's a six. Those are all pretty good. There's a really good chance, so on one of your five, is gonna, your wife's going to be, or your husband is going to be a two, or a one, or a zero. And he said, that's where the attack will come on your marriage, on the two, on the zero. And he admonished us to be on guard. And that's where Pergamum was attacked, at their weakness, not their strength. They were so strong on the front end, boldly defending Christ, but creeping in from the unfortified side, some of the church started teaching that it's cool to disregard God's law. There's no need for repentance. And what's interesting about this text, it says here that they hold, hold to the teaching of Balaam. They are clinging to it. They're trusting in it. So notice there's an unbrokenness described here, a lifestyle description, an overall ethic a worldview described here. So these are not people who just fell into sin or stumbled, who dropped the ball, who want to get back up and get online. They're people, this is what they cling to. This is their belief, their value system. This is okay to them. They had fallen out of the rhythm of repentance. We all fall. Christians repent, and they run to the cross again. And these folks thought, saw no need for that. Hey, I'm cool. And to that... We hear Christ's words in verse 16. Listen to what he says. Therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's that threatening image again. He'll come down and he will judge them with his word, with the truth. He is saying, hey, you guys get this straightened out. Repent of this or I'll come down and straighten this out for you. Either way, this will be straightened out. But even, this is interesting to me, looking at this and thinking about it this week, even in the midst of this threat from God to this church, notice the olive branch of grace here. He's leaving them room for repentance. There's still time to run back to the cross, to fall once again into the loving arms of God. And this is the Christian life. We are no better than this church in Pergamum. We have our own issues. We have our own blind spots, our strengths, our weaknesses. We certainly sin, don't we? Yeah, I got my first amen. Nice. We are sexually immoral. We are idolaters. We disregard God's law when it's convenient for us. We have our blind spots just as they have theirs. But we are called as Christians to live a life of repentance. And the Christian life is this. You strive your best to obey God's law. You fall, you fail, you repent, and you run to the cross as quickly as you can. You don't run away from God. You go towards God in those moments. Run there. Bathe bathe yourself in the grace and mercy of God. Immerse yourself in that. And then get up and you start it all over again. It's this ongoing cycle, this rhythm of repentance, rhythm of grace. No one ever moves beyond the need to repent. None of us ever move beyond our need for grace. And nobody in this room, especially not me, has moved beyond the need to ask for forgiveness from our family, from our friends, from God. None of us are beyond our need to receive grace from others or from God. If that's our idea of the Christian life, we're viewing it wrong. Repentance, grace, 
forgiveness. These are key themes in the Christian faith. And finally, verse 17, and let me just be honest about this verse. When I was thinking about this passage in this chapter, this last week, uh, Pastor Tony and I got together and he asked me to teach on this. Um, I, th- I saw this verse and I thought, oh man, what is this? I'll just kind of stop at verse 16 and kind of just read over this but not really talk about it. But as I begin to study this passage, this is now my favorite verse in this whole bunch, and I hope it's a blessing to you. Here comes some glorious promises from Christ to you, to his people. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. So first, real quick, what does it mean? Who is this guy who conquers? Who is the one who conquers? Who is that person? And to help us understand this, let me read to you Revelation twelve eleven. A few chapters down from where we are right now. It says to the church, And they have conquered him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So these folks are conquering through an embrace of the gospel, through a trust in the person and work of Christ, through a testimony that says, I'm rejecting myself, rejecting my strength, dropping my sword, and resting in the strength of Christ. So the one who conquers in Revelation 2.17, is verse we're reading, that person is the believer, the Christian, the person of faith. And we don't conquer on our own. This is so important. We conquer because we are joined to Christ, the conqueror. The one who conquered death and hell for us. He fought and won in our place. We are not conquerors through our own strength and might, but through humble faith in the strength and might of Jesus Christ. And if you miss that, you miss the gospel, the beauties of the Christian life that says it's not about us. It's not about me or you. Our culture will tell you it's about you. The gospel says it's not. There's something amazing, and it's not you. It's not me. You guys remember when David fought Goliath in the Old Testament before he became king? He's this little guy, and there's this huge giant up there. He has nothing but a sling. He gets some stones. The power of God comes over him, and he slays the giant, right? Cuts his head off. And who's behind him at the time? All these soldiers are kind of hiding behind the wine barrels, not wanting to be seen. He's fighting for them. And his victory over Goliath was a victory for those soldiers who wouldn't come out and fight. And David's victory was a victory for all of Israel. They won because David was their representative. You guys see that? He spoke for them. His victory was their victory. He won the battle, so Israel won the battle. In the same way, through his sinless life, through his death on a cross, through his bodily resurrection, Christ won the victory for us. He conquered for us. He is our David. He willingly died for his people. He rose bodily from the dead in all his glory. Now, that victory speaks for his people. His righteousness speaks for you. His resurrection speaks for you. And how awesome is that? That means the pressure's off. This thing's all on Jesus' shoulders. We're sending him out there saying, hey, fight for us, conquer for us. Jesus is the true and better David, fighting for us. All the battles we would lose, 
instantly. We step out there, we're done. He fights for us. And Jesus is describing in this passage those who are joined to him by faith through Christ the conqueror. And for those people, he says, here come some good promises for you. I will give you some hidden manna. I will give you some hidden manna. And that manna reference is um, a reference to the Old Testament. When the children of Israel were wandering from Egypt to Canaan in, in that time through the wilderness, God sustained them by giving them manna from heaven supernaturally. He met their needs. And think back for a second now to the church in Pergamum. Think back a few verses. We just read how they're struggling with sexual immorality, struggling with idolatry. What's at the root of that? What drove them to that? At the heart of those issues is a longing for intimacy, is it not? A longing for love. And they, they thought sex and idolatry would satisfy that urge, that longing within them. And the truth is, everyone in this room longs to be loved. We all desire intimacy. And that drives so much of what we do. That drives perhaps so many of our selfies that we post. Or, or that drives why we have to build this giant building in our name. Have our name. I just went to downtown Chicago last night with my family. We saw this building that had a massive name written across it. Someone had the drive to build a building with a massive name on it. What's behind that? I want to be loved. I want to be appreciated. And the gospel says to us, to his people, to Christ's people, to those who let Christ fight for us, who have laid down our swords, that's what faith is. You're giving up. You're dropping your sword. You're hiding behind the barrel saying, Jesus, fight for me. For those people who conquer through Christ, the gospel says, I know you fully. All your blemishes, all your scars, all those parts of you that make you feel inadequate and ugly and sinful, I know about it. You are fully known, yet fully loved anyway. And that is powerful. Christ here is speaking to this deep need that some of us don't even know we have yet. And nothing can reach the depth of this desire and need like the grace of Christ. Jesus is saying to his people, people who are looking out there for fulfillment, I will meet your needs. I will sustain you like manna from heaven. I'm better than the pagan gods. I'm better than sexual immorality. In a city where people were looking to Zeus, looking to Caesar, looking to sexual immorality to satisfy their longings for fulfillment, and to Christians today who are looking to self to satisfy our fulfillment, longing for fulfillment, Jesus says, I am the true manna, the true satisfaction, the true fulfillment. Repent and come back to me. Be satisfied in me. I want you guys to have joy, but you're not going to find it at the pagan altars. And there's a lot of people in this room. We could have revival break out right now if we had them stand up and testify and agree and say with me, along with me, yeah, Christ is right. There is no satisfaction out there. It really is only found in Christ. It's a struggle to stay there, to live there. But I've been down that road. I've seen what's out there, and it never really does quite satisfy, does it? It's all kind of a lie. And it comes at us at our weak spot. We got our doctrine pretty great at this church, I would say. Pretty sure up, I think. We got some weak spots, so 
And that's where they're hitting us. They're luring us in. And Christ says to that, I will give you manna. I will give you me. I'm better. Let me sustain you. And it challenged us. Let him sustain us. Let him satisfy us. This is how we were made. We were wired to be fed the manna of Christ. We reject it. We get bored with it. And we go elsewhere. And finally, verse 17, he says to the conqueror, I will give him a white stone. I will give him a white stone. What does that mean? And there are a few theories behind what this could mean. Pastor Tony and I hashed it out this weekend. Our favorite, most plausible theory is that in that age and time, a white stone or a stone represented an admission to an event or to a feast, to a banquet. Like we have ticket stubs today. They had stones, certain stones that would get you into an event. The stone from Christ says to his people, you are in. Your name is on the list. You are no longer an outsider. Jesus is saying to his folks, you're invited to my feast. And so often we feel like outsiders, don't we? There's some really confident looking people in this room that I see. But deep down, we feel like we're not quite cool enough. Like we're not quite part of the clique. Like we can't really be vulnerable. Like we aren't quite inner circle. We sometimes feel like we're missing out on some conversation or statement or something. We, have, we want to be more engaged, more involved. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why we love social media so much. We want to be seen and to see and to be involved in the, in the conversations. I can't stand the thought of missing something. I got to be in the know. There's this incredible interview I witnessed, and I shared it with a lot of our college kids a few months ago, months ago, months ago uh, about, about the Beatles, rock band the Beatles from the old days. Um, perhaps the Beatles are the most influential and popular rock band of all time, pop band, I guess you'd describe them nowadays. In this interview, in this documentary, Ringo and Paul are talking, and Ringo opens up and he shares a little personal story. He says, we were at our peak. We were selling tons of records, sold out shows. But I felt like an outsider. I didn't feel like I was in. So I go, Ringo says, I went to John, John Lennon, and I said, John, you know, it's you, Paul, and George. You guys kind of are in. I'm the outsider. I'll just leave. You guys can kind of do your thing, get someone better than me, and it'll be great for you, and I'll just kind of do my own thing. And John says to him, wait a minute. Hold on, dude. I'm the outsider. It's always been you, Paul, and George. And then Ringo goes to Paul and says, Paul, you know, I... I feel like an outsider. I'm not really part of this band anymore. You guys have kind of moved on. You're better than me. It's always been you, John, and George. And Paul says, well, wait a minute, dude. I'm the outsider. It's always been you, George, and John. They all felt like outsiders at the peak of their success. With all the fame and glory, they still struggled with the same things you and I struggle with. Ringo wanted to be loved. He wanted to be appreciated. You would think all that fame and fortune would do it, but obviously it didn't. He felt like he wasn't part of the inner circle, and neither did they. All that success, 
All the talent, all the fame, all the fortune did not satisfy that longing. And with this white stone, what Jesus is saying to you, he's saying to his people, you are in. The stone represents a ticket to my great feast. You are part of the club. And one day you will no longer be an outsider. You will no longer be in exile. No longer on the outside. You are accepted. Welcome to my inner circle. And the gospel really does speak to our deepest needs, doesn't it? And finally, at the very end, I'm almost done. Very end of 17. Jesus says, A new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And this is an amazing promise. You'll get a stone, you're in, and on that stone is going to be a new name that no one knows except you and me. It's a reference to our new identity in Christ. But also here you'll note there's an exclusive knowledge talked about there, an intimacy, a familiarity, an unshared, unique affection between God and you, God and his people. No one's going to know this information except for you and me, he's saying. A private communication. That's pretty awesome. We always think that God loves the world in a general sense. Here's another reminder from the scriptures. He loves it in a specific sense, meaning he loves you. His love is not vague. It's not some idea. It has an object. And that is you. No one will know it but us. This will be our thing. You and I will have this unique bond that no one else will have. I don't just love you in a vague sense. He's saying, I love you specifically. I know the hairs on your head. I know the hurts in your heart. I know the pain that you're feeling, the things you struggle with. My gaze pierces through all that. You don't hide anything from me. I see it all, yet I love you anyway, he says. And one day, I will show you just how special you are to me. We're going to have this private conversation. I'm going to give you a stone. It's going to have a name written on it that only you and I know. It'll be our thing. Your specific name. Our private insight. That's inner circle. It's a beautiful promise of God's intimate and specific love for you. He's jealous for you. He loves you specifically, not vaguely. And the challenge for all of us every day, it's harder than you would imagine, is to truly believe that, to rest in that. The minute we can finally believe we are loved in Christ by God, we no longer have the need to go elsewhere to find love. We are satisfied. Our cup is overflowing. And then we love our spouses and children and friends and neighbors from an overflow, not from an emptiness. We're not trying to get love from people. We have love. And it flows out in what we do. You guys see how amazing that is? Paradigm shifting, life changing. That's the letter to the church in Pergamum. And you'll notice in the letter, God used admonishment, but he also uses the promises of grace, both to woo us in, to draw us to himself. It's a gorgeous letter that reminds you that Jesus will fight for you. He has your back. He's better than anything the world has to offer. He calls you to reject your idols and to run back into his arms of grace. Let him sustain you. He wants you to know that you are in. One day you will no longer feel like an exile, no longer feel like you're on the outside. You will, you will be inner circle. And he loves you. 
Not just in a generic sense. You know, it's one thing to say, I love the homeless. It's quite another thing to get in there and feed them and teach them things and help them, sacrifice for them. He doesn't just love the world, he loves you and he did something about it. His love has an object. And this letter is but another reminder to us to shake us out of our apathy, to draw us to him. Another reminder that says to you, you are loved. I pray this morning we would believe it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this love. It's so hard for us to get our minds around it. We are prone to wander from the gospel, prone to think this whole thing rests on us. It's hard for us to accept a gift. But I pray you, you would help us. Grant us the faith to truly believe the gospel, to truly rest in the finished work of Christ for us. May we stand behind the wine barrels. May we drop our sword and shield and be content with you having fought for us. May we give up control and finally begin to rest in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.